Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card. Because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store. All right. I'm glad to have you. If you guys don't know, this is Nate Duncan, a guy that uh, writes for. Well, tell us where you write for, where we can find you before we begin. I'm a writing free agent at the moment, actually, but I do the Dunked On Daily Basketball podcast right now. So that's uh, something that's available after pretty much every game, Sunday night through Thursday night. So it's there for your uh, morning commute, Monday through Friday. Uh, we do uh, breaking down the games. We're doing salary cap stuff. And we're doing, uh, we'll do some draft stuff too. So it should be doing, going five days a week, at least through free agency. Uh, so give, give that a listen, but uh, let's get to work. Thanks for having me on. You got it. Yeah, I, I listen to it every day. And it's definitely a big hole in the podcast, NBA podcast universe now that uh, he who won't be named is not doing his anymore. So uh, definitely check that out. And uh, well, let's start off here. We're talking about the game. I'm glad that you could be here because I've always done this by myself and I'm glad I could bounce some ideas and hear your opinions. What, what did you see uh, the the war, the Cavaliers' strategy here going in with the big lineup against the small lineup? Yeah, I think that they decided that they just weren't going to get enough offense without Moskov on the floor to kind of bully them inside and keep the pace down. And I think it worked well. They are able to draw a lot of those loose ball fouls, kind of get their hands on some offensive rebounds uh, after that first quarter when the Warriors hit a few shots. But, you know, ultimately this is a team that just didn't have enough on offense, the Cavaliers, and that's really where they failed in this series. Everyone would think, of course, of Golden State as an offensive team, but and they played a fast pace, but their defense was awesome, and that's how they won this series. The Cavs just couldn't score. Right. And by the way, I don't want to take anything away from the Cleveland Cavaliers defense because there were huge stretches of the series where they were awesome on defense as well. Yeah, they really were. I think finally the Warriors got them figured out by – going with the small lineup. They scored pretty well, like well over a point per possession after in games four through six with the small lineup. But yeah, I mean, the Cavaliers had a great strategy of just ignoring Green. I mean, that was the other thing too, is that going without a center unlocked Green's offense because when Bogut was in the game or Azili was in the game, he was trying to drive in and Bogut's man, usually Moscow, was just waiting at the rim. So I thought that's why that small lineup changed was so key and they're able to score well enough after that and uh shockingly for a small lineup maintain just as good a defense as they had already yeah i, I mean I, I i don't think it was a bad uh strategy again to give iggy those shots they've tried it in the past and he's definitely inconsistent but uh it just seemed like he finally he got enough of a rhythm there in the first quarter where it just became a problem but i do want to give props to coach blatt for sticking with it because I do think that Mozgov was, like you said, able to impose his will uh, in a way that they went away from that way too early in game five. 
Well, I, I thought actually I, I understood why they did that in game five. And the Warriors, for whatever reason, did not go back to the double teaming that completely flogged Mozgov early on in that game five. Uh, they didn't really double Mozgov or Thompson at all. And when they did, it was just as effective. I'm not sure exactly why they did that. Uh, I'd be curious to know, but whatever, it worked. So uh, you can't can't complain too much. Yeah, it was weird. I've been kind of complaining all series long. The Warriors weren't double teaming enough LeBron. And, and then, but when we did see some double teams again tonight, I have a couple of clips we can show too, where uh, again, the, the, the Cavaliers are simply not prepared for it. It was very strange where they, they didn't have any kind of cutting or movement. Mozgov should have been, should have broke right into, okay, this is going to be a nice pass to this open spot here. And the guy's going to move and get a shot. And yet they seem confused. He had a, he did have a couple nice passes today, which I had not seen from him before. But I mean, he's not a guy who really ever posts up that much, even one on one, because you know he's usually guarded by a center, and he's not really a great post option when there's another center across from him. So he's just not used to it, like double teaming in the NBA. I mean, guys, even guys like Dwight Howard, who have been post up guys for years, still don't deal with it that well. And it takes it's someone that just takes tons and tons of practice. Even Tim Duncan, when he started career his career. Uh, needed to learn that. So it's not something you can just start doing, you know, after a, one game of being double teamed, I feel like, and that's why it's a good strategy. Okay. Yeah, I hear you. Now, I mean, we've already, we got into it on Twitter a little bit uh, based on what you were saying in the podcast as far as uh, how skilled Mozgov is. I mean, I think that we're seeing some of that skill. I think we're seeing some inexperience out there as well. But, you know, what, what I was trying to tell you or, or make the point was that, I mean, here's a guy who's got a nice jump shot. Terrific free throw shooter, good form. Uh, he's big. He can. I, I. By the way, when you look at his rim protection numbers, they're kind of elite. Like he is a wall up there. So I think the playoffs, that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like you know Mozgov is a guy who. I mean, let me correct me if I'm wrong, but is he a free agent this year? No, he is a free agent after next year. He has that cheap five million dollar contract. That's part of why they were able to had to give up two first round picks to get him. Not a guy who. People thought of as being any good until he got to the Cavs, but because he was so cheap, that's part of where his value went. Where they had to give up two first-round picks. Yeah, I, I saw glimpses, by the way, of a good player. I thought in New York with D'Antoni, there were moments where he he can, and he still does. He he can move very well for his size, and uh, and certainly we can see the defense. I mean, I think Cleveland's kind of lucked in here to a really good situation going into next year. Yeah, assuming that they can they can bring everybody back, and it was a shame we didn't get to see their full team. I think. It would have been a different series, a much more entertaining series. Had if they had Love and Kyrie, they wouldn't have been able to keep up this level of defense. I don't think either. Uh, but yeah, I mean that. You know, I think next year is going to be really, really interesting. You know, we should probably be giving the Warriors credit for this year because they're awesome. They could well have still won the title, but it's hard to argue that they faced another great team at all in these playoffs, which was really kind of a shame I felt you know they may well have beaten that another great team uh but it would have been nice to see it yeah I feel like a lot of the guys who want to give that kind of excuse like they got injured or or they got an easy path I mean I don't think that you know Carl Malone feels bad for LeBron James or uh you yeah. know or, or those guys who never got a shot either you know it's like it happens and then I'm sure we could go through the last 30 uh, champions, and there's always going to be some weird path. Although it does seem like some of those like Bulls teams, they always seem to have to go through the Knicks or the Pacers. Like there's always sort of a, that that team there. I'm trying to think of any other team that's had this easy of a path. Have you looked into that at all? Um, let's see. This easy of a path. 
Uh, the 09 Lakers, uh, were, I think, would be pretty close there. I mean, the, who is, they played Orlando. They avoided both Boston. And, you know, Garnett got injured. Uh, Cleveland got upset by Orlando. That was a good Orlando team, certainly. Uh, but, you know, that was a five-game win. And then the best team they faced in the West was the Nuggets uh, that year. So now I would go back to that where that was sort of the last kind of unsatisfactory playoffs we've had like this where there wasn't really a great series in the uh, final four. I, if that, that might be the year where they played OKC and um... – and I think that Durant, uh, or no, uh, didn't Powell hit a, a game winner and Kobe was that was, 20, that was that was 2010. 2010, they had a much tougher. Okay. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that was that was 2010. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, so for, for you, I mean, do you think that this Golden State team is like one of the best teams of our lifetime, or, or are you not prepared to give them that kind of credit? You know, it's a great question because it's been coming up a lot and I'm trying to reflect because, you know, I was actually I was in Chicago for the 72 and 10 year and I got to see all those games. And I mean, here's my problem. I do have a big I have a gap of NBA like, you know, for some reason after uh, Michael left, retired from the Bulls the first time in 98. Like I kind of lost track of, of the NBA for a little while there. So I have a gap. I, I'll admit it. Like I, I think most season. of the country did actually. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I know the 60s, 70s, you know, perfectly, uh, you know, I mean, listen, if you're going to talk about the 86 Celtics or that 72 and 10 Bulls uh, or one of the Lakers teams, maybe the, the back, the, 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 um, the uh, what's it called? The one that won three in a row. No, yeah. they didn't win three in a row. Then they, they, they just missed it. Yeah. Yeah. They're all over to O2 Lakers. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about Magic and Kareem and those guys. But, oh, okay, okay. But but that, that too. So yeah, I mean, are they that good? Um, it's so radically different, right? In a way, uh, that than what we've seen before. So it's really kind of hard to it's hard to know. But certainly, uh, yeah, this they have to be top. I mean, let, let's just say they're easily one of the top twenty champions of all of all time, right? Yeah, I, I mean, sixty-seven and fifteen is nothing to sneeze at, and top ten point differential. Throughout the year, nothing to sneeze at. I mean, if they hadn't kind of tripped up in those first three games against Memphis and Cleveland uh, and had found their rhythm just a little earlier in those series, then, you know, we might be talking about them, you know, having the two uh, six-game series against those teams that maybe weren't that great is the only stain to me, ultimately. But, I mean, you know, by by the end of the series, they completely restored order and this series ultimately was not really as close as even a six game would make you think. You know, they won all the games that they won. They won pretty comfortably, uh, except for that game one. You know, okay, let's 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 talk a little overview about the series itself because you're right. You know, there, there's a lot of talk from the Cleveland Cavalier fans where they could have been up 2-0 or 3-0 even uh, just as easily as they were down, uh, up 2-1. And yet, uh, I, I think I sense that there was something off with the way they were playing to me, and even with LeBron. Today we posted a video about why he wasn't the uh, the, the finals MVP. I, I have been saying if they get into a seventh game, then I would understand that their narrative would push him to maybe win that, even if they lost. But just the way they attacked, um, let, it was unsatisfying to me, even though it was an amazing uh, turn by LeBron James to some degree. Uh, but but how did you feel? Did you have that same pang of, of wanting something more? I did throughout the season, especially when it was Love and Kyrie and they're playing so much ISO ball. I would have loved to have seen more ball movement. I, you know, David Blatt was reputed to be a, have a great offense coming from Europe. And then, you know, for whatever reason, that was never implemented. 
uh, you know, maybe do it to LeBron's wishes. But uh, and even when when they had Kyrie, I still think they could have moved the ball more than they did. But I think it was clear when you saw these other guys try to create. Once Love and Kyrie went down, that really like the LeBron ISO was all you had. Because even if you were running, I mean, this is the thing with the Warriors, especially when they went to the small lineup. You can try and run all the off-ball stuff you want. They're all the same size. They're just going to switch it. And same thing even with LeBron on pick and rolls. All right, you want to run a pick and roll? Now you got Draymond Green on him. you got to go one-on-one -on -one against him instead. So, I mean, really, him going one-on-one, -on -one, he was their only player who could plausibly create a shot. And, I mean, that, a lot of that speaks to the Warriors' greatness defensively um, in the type of interchangeable guys they have. I mean, that, that ball uh, just destroyed the Hawks. You know, I mean, that another essentially good defensive team, they couldn't deal with that because they couldn't do that type of switching. Uh, and so that's why – and Cleveland's role players also ran out of steam too. I mean, they missed a lot of open threes over those last three games. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there's any other strategy that would have worked any better. The Warriors are just that good. Well, I, I agree with that the switching would stymie most of the thing, but if they get the switch on LeBron, like so I don't mind LeBron shooting the ball as much as he did. I just would have preferred it off of a little bit of motion, some sort of dribble pitch action even, where it might, it's much harder to switch that without giving something up. Uh, and we, when we did see the nuggets of it, it, that looked good. And it was like more please, but yet uh, here's the so, – and this is the bigger question is, and you mentioned it with the fact that uh, David Blatt has this – you know, a really terrific offense that we broke down before the season started and showed all the great stuff that happens in it. LeBron takes over. We've known in the past that he has run the team. And he, like, when he was in Cleveland last night with Mike Brown, I've heard that it was like he was subbing guys in. He was calling plays like we heard earlier. Um, that that becomes an issue, don't you think? Because maybe, <laughs> maybe they would have gotten some more out of their role players had they been able to, to gym. Because that's what the offense is for, right? It's for the role players, not for LeBron. Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I mean, I think you know that may be true, but it's just that, like, I'll. I still will stick with the fact that that it's just, you know, the the switching really just killed them, and uh, you know that I, I think that's that's really what it was. Uh, you know, I, I definitely think we'll see what happens next year if they bring everybody back and they're still kind of running this like ISO crap. Then I think we got a pretty good argument because I was saying the same thing you were at the start of the year. Um, but, I mean, you know, when LeBron was off the floor, these guys had, you know, like a 50 offensive rating. They shot 18% coming into this game. Like, that's just comically bad. So, I mean, you can't – and they're and off of his passes and shots, they were still scoring relatively efficiently. So, I think that you have to conclude based on that that that's all they could have really been doing. I guess so. I'm, I'm, I'm always about the process here when I'm looking at that stuff and I say, you know what, okay, fine, if that's going to be that way – um, then all of the, then they run the offense anyway. Like, see if you can get that because, uh, as far as I could, I gotta look at the numbers, but you know, when LeBron was in, they were better, right? But the, but everyone still struggled, right? Every besides LeBron, yeah. nobody really had a good series at all. Uh, my argument also was that by playing him this many minutes, it didn't give the other guys when he was out any rhythm at all or any sense of how to find themselves. And I know that you don't, you can't like, you know, waste a possession in the finals and this and that. But I felt like it was it was almost a, a fulfilling prophecy because LeBron clearly didn't feel like they could help. They weren't getting a chance to do it on their own at all, and so they didn't do it. Yeah, that may that may well be the case, and when especially when you look at all year when those guys weren't really getting touches. And I think you also have a good point that 
doing that switching is harder when you're moving the ball a lot, you know, from side to side, especially. But ultimately, you know, I think those guys just weren't that good. I mean, Del Vadova had like one good game and then he just basically, other than that, was completely unplayable. I mean, he was getting shots, you know, he just couldn't make them. Same thing with Shumpert and Smith only finally heated up at the very, very end at game six when, you know, he basically had no conscience and could completely fire away. So, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it, I keep going back to the fact that Golden State is just that good. They're the number one defense, and they just throttled this team. Yeah, I think it's it, it's all sort of a moot point because, yeah, they, they were the better team, and that usually is what's going to win out no matter what in a seven-game series. And, uh, and you know, I've been thinking about just even just now, we've talked about where, they, where that Golden State team sits. And, yeah, I mean, you're right. They have to be in the top. Maybe top 20 was probably not giving them enough credit. You know, they, they have to be much higher than that. I would say, you know, somewhere in the top 10. Um, and, and here's the thing. As a coach, I, what I keep saying to everybody I talk to about it is I really wish I was 20 or 21 just starting out coaching and then watch the Warriors. And where it was influenced because even when I was young and forming my philosophy, I envisioned the notion of like, God, it would be great to get threes. But I, I didn't see it and I couldn't see it. Now I can. So going forward 10 years from now, right, these younger coaches that are exposed to nothing but this, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that's going to manifest itself in the way, the way everybody plays basketball. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think everyone would love to play like the Warriors and they, their influence came from the Spurs and even, you know, going back to those triangle teams as well. But the thing to remember too is they got Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, right? I mean, and all that all that great and, – and also I think it, the Cavs deserve a lot of credit for taking them out of a lot of that beautiful action. I mean, it, they got to the point where they had to just do a pick and roll with Curry every time. And, of yeah. course, that worked great because they had to put two on the ball and then it was four on three. You know, So I think that Curry kind of got short shrift in this series because he was moving the ball. And once uh, Draymond Green actually started playing well and they had the small lineup, they really were able to score very effectively. Uh, but I, I think, you know – all that dribble handoff stuff, when you have a big who can't shoot, that doesn't really work as well unless you have amazing shooters like Steph and Clay, because then, you know, you have to bring your big out to potentially help on that, and then you can roll to the basket. If you can just go under on those dribble handoffs and just keep a guy at the rim and not have to guard someone like Bogut doing a handoff, then it becomes a lot easier to guard, and all that ball movement kind of ends up not really happening. And you saw when Bogut got the ball in this series, they did such a great job denying them that he was basically, you know, forced off the floor offensively. Yeah, that Bogut's an interesting case because, you know, obviously they don't really care about his offense per se, but certainly um, his defense was bad. He just seemed lost. He just seemed constantly like sort of behind and not quite there. Uh, and Moskov, I think, was hurting him a lot. And one of those games where they were lobbing it every time he had a foul to, to, to defend that, um, I, I wonder if, you know, what, what the real – something was off. Would, would you agree or do you think that just something wasn't his series? Yeah, I think it kind of wasn't his series uh, because of the, the ISO stuff. I think Bogut is much better in pick and roll. He's a master pick and roll defender. That's his number one skill to me. He's got the ability when guys drive to kind of stay on the axis between the driver and the roll man to prevent the pass and still bother the shot. That's probably his number one skill. He's not really all that amazing at like boxing out. Uh, he's not incredibly fast coming over trying to 2.9 and some of those ISOs. And also he's pretty inconsistent too. I mean, I thought he was actually okay in the first couple games defensively. And then that third game, he just didn't have the energy for whatever reason. That's why I wasn't as high on him as some people were 
with the defensive awards because he's not someone who, for whatever reason, has a ton of energy every night, and he didn't in that game three, and then he just ended up being benched pretty much the rest of the series. Uh, but kudos to Kerr for doing that, right? Like, who changes up their starting lineup and a team who is, you know, has won 80 games in the year to that point or, or 79 games or whatever it was? Uh, that was a remarkable, and it completely changed the series. Well, we kind of have to give kudos to uh, Nick Uren, his assistant, because I believe, you know, he's the guy with the idea because it would have been natural to put Iguodala in the starting lineup for Barnes, right? But instead, yeah. it was that radical. And I and I thought, that, yeah, you're right. That was uh, that's what coaching is about, right? Coaching is about forcing the, the, the other coach to have to adjust or lose. And um, and I thought that's a nice thing. That's an outcropping of this series is that perhaps you know, we're getting a, a, the sense of that the coaches are important. I mean, everyone wants to say it's the players' league and the players win, and the coaches usually say that too. But without question, <laughs> Steve Kerr and his staff had such a huge imprint on their season and this series and, and the whole playoffs. They were awesome. I mean, really, I you know, I follow them pretty much every game. I'm out here in the Bay Area, you know, went to a lot of their games. Uh, but really, this is the first coaching staff I can remember where I – disagreed with so little of what they did you know not to say that i'm like the arbiter of coaching but i think they just like and if i did see something that wasn't working it was almost immediately corrected you know and they saw it like very quickly too and i think they hit all all the right buttons starting barns worked out great um you know in implementing this new offense the one thing that got lucky with was david lee's injury because then that enabled them to start green. I don't know if they would have started green if Lee hadn't been injured. And in fact, in fact, in training camp, the reports were that Lee was killing it and green was like trying way too hard to impress the coaches and was like screwing up. So uh, they got lucky and became this monster defensive team that could switch everything because of green's presence. And then also his ability to shoot threes provided another spacer over Lee. Sure. And you know, the funny thing is, is that with David Lee, I have no doubt they still would have won 60 games right they might not have gotten 67 but you know with david lee is, is terrific he really is a good player now the only thing that was weird though throughout the season you you probably watched even more was there seemed to be a weird thing with him where as soon as he went in even if he wasn't related to the play the other team would just light him up on on, on their defensive end and it's maybe the other players are like they know that david lee is in and they really want to make sure they're helping for him and so they get beat i mean i don't know if you saw that or not but that's what it felt like to me yeah, that, that might be it. I mean, and, you know, obviously they would attack him because the beauty of this Golden State team is they didn't have anyone who was a weak link in their starting lineup. And then even when you came in off the bench, you had Livingston, you had Iguodala, even like a guy, deep bench guy like Justin Holiday, Azili, all those guys. I mean, there's like nine really, really good defenders on the team. So if Lee ever came in, the other, the other team's eyes would just light up. It's like, finally, we have somewhere to attack. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you're right. I guess that's the issue. And I, 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 he is what he is, and it's just simply not never going to get much better, I don't think. Uh, I don't think it's from lack of effort. Um, but what's the story now going forward with the Warriors? Because you are one of those cap guys and who knows the, the contracts. I don't know any of that stuff. So going forward, what's the landscape look like for the Warriors and who are they going to be able to keep? Well, they should be. All it's going to cost to keep everyone on this team is money. Uh, the only major free agent they have after this year is green he was making basically a million bucks these last couple of years so very very underpaid but he's now a restricted free agent he very likely will command a maximum salary if i were them i would offer him a full five-year deal uh he's restricted which means 
he can seek offers elsewhere. But if they, uh, it, you know, the Warriors will have a chance to match that. So they can do that. The only issue is financial because uh, there'll be about $15 million over the luxury tax. Mm-hmm. And that means that they would be paying ultimately about $50 million in salary and tax because of that $15 million. Coincidentally, David Lee makes about $15 million. So I would expect, despite the fact that he had a, a little cameo in these finals, I felt good for him about that that he did, I would expect that they would attempt to move on from him. They probably will have to attach some kind of an asset to get someone to pick up that last year of his contract. But I mean, you know, it's probably, frankly, like even if you have to trade a first round pick for the Warriors ownership to save $50 million, it's probably worth it for them to do that. Uh, But that's what I expect to happen. Uh, And then they can bring back pretty much the entire band uh, next year if they move and if they move on from Lee then they can at least maybe sign someone with uh, you know the 3.3 million dollar mini mid-level exception as well and then when the cap goes up in 2016 they'll be fine again you know the team that would really benefit um, from having David Lee on their team would be I think the Clippers because their top three are I think can match most other top threes in the league and they don't have a big guy off the bench they can bring that could be productive I don't think it, it it's not possible, right? That doesn't work. They already did the no, last. I, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but the Clippers don't really have any salaries to trade to match that. Uh, but actually, I mean, like you are on the right track, though, because that might be the type of team that would be willing to get him, even though he's overpaid. Now, of course, they have their own luxury tax concern. So if they pick up Lee and his $60 million, they would have to trade some of their own guys. Uh, Number one, and they don't have really many big salaries to trade, especially after they just traded Pause and they just traded uh, Matt Barnes as well um, to, to match up. But yeah, I mean, that's the sort of team that might say, all right, we have no big man depth. We're capped out. We have no other way to acquire someone. Maybe we'll just trade you some bad counters. The problem there, though, is the Warriors don't want to get any salary back because then they just have to pay the luxury tax on those guys. So what you would probably see is him being traded to a team like the Sixers, a, a team like the Magic, maybe a team that's going to have a lot of salary cap space and is in a rebuilding mode and would want that asset, you know, along the lines of a first-round pick or something like that. I mean, a first-round pick might even not be enough to get it done because we've seen in past years, it's usually about one first-round pick, late first-round pick for every $10 million in salary, and he's a little more than that. So they might even have to throw in – a little something else as well, uh, or you know, take back some bad salary. But we'll see. It, it's uh, it's one of those good problems. I mean, I don't think it's it, they should be able to move on from him, and I don't think it'll be an issue ultimately. Yeah. Now, uh, let me just ask you this real quick about this trade because are, are, do you see Lance Stevenson being the Dennis Rodman of for the Bulls? <laughs> oh, you mean like a troubled guy who comes in and uh, you know puts the team over the top? Uh, well. He's about like one twentieth as good as Rodman, so that might be that might be an issue to start with. Uh, I mean, I see the parallel with you know him being sort of troubled, and he does have talent. I just worry that he's not quite a good enough shooter to space the floor for some of their other guys, uh, and you know, really still more of a shooting guard than a small forward. And they need he can maybe guard. He's strong, so he can probably guard some small forwards, but. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, Matt Barnes was actually better than him last year. Granted, he's old uh, and probably was going to decline this year. But 
I don't know. I mean, it's a risk, certainly, uh, but an interesting one. I mean, I think a, lar a larger part of it, too, is just that they're able to get Haas's contract off the books, which actually runs two years longer than Stevenson. So Stevenson, if they don't like him, they can cut him after this year with no further financial penalty. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think that people want to ignore the chemistry aspect of this, which, as we've seen, in Indiana, let's not forget, Indiana did not want him, and they didn't want him back uh, when he wanted to go back after leaving to go to Charlotte. Charlotte clearly didn't work out either. Uh, that's the issue. Now, I know it's a veteran team, and this, and that's why it's sort of that's the other Rodman aspect of this. The veteran team with strong leaders, they're going to be able to tamp that down. But um, I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 that's what I, that's my, my biggest concern with that and feel like, you know, uh, whatever positive you want to see are way balanced on the other end by that, by the locker room issues. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, you know, I think those guys can handle it. Uh, you know, guys like, like Paul, like Griffin, uh, you know, and, and DeAndre Jordan, if he comes back, since he's a free agent there, but I mean, he just, he, he was one of the worst players in the NBA last year, you know, and, and, uh, he's going to have to play a lot better. He did have some injury issues, but even before he was injured, he was just horrible. Granted, he was probably the worst possible fit you could imagine in Charlotte because they had nowhere for him to drive, and he's not really a three-point shooter. So I think with a more spaced floor and uh, better passers, he, he could potentially be better. Uh, you know, it's a high-risk move for the Clippers, but, uh, you know, I think ultimately it doesn't move the needle that much either way for them. Well, uh, and, and except for the fact that you would have hoped that maybe Hawes could be a little better this year uh, and be the competent backup big man that they signed him to be. Now they got to find somebody else to be a third big unless it's going to be big baby again all year. Yeah, and I have no doubt that Hawes can find some situation that he'll be better than he was last year and somewhere in between maybe what he was doing in Philly and what he did in L.A. because, you know, he does have ability. We've seen him be a good passer. We've seen him knock down threes. I would love to find out exactly what happened uh, that that sapped his mojo from him this past year because uh, I have no doubt another situation he could do a lot better. Yeah, I mean, he had some injury concerns as well, and I, I think he was just unsustainably hot shooting 40% on threes the previous year. He's at 35% for his career. I think that's probably kind of where he'll even out at ultimately for another team. You know, I think he can be a decent backup center, but – the idea that he could play with DeAndre Jordan, I always thought was pretty misguided. He's just not good enough defensively to do that. And, you know, he's not a guy who can really post up his matchup. So you can just put a small guy on him, guard him at the three-point line, and then that guy can just drive right by him on the other end. So I, I didn't like him as a fit. He's a pure center, you know, and really only could play well playing next to Griffin. And there's only so many minutes a game. I mean, DeAndre Jordan is playing 38 minutes a game. So – you know, what role really was there. Oh, they would have liked it better if they'd gotten a guy who could swing back and forth between the four and five positions. But, oh, well, uh, it's well, a water under the bridge now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because the West landscape is shifting again because we have a new coach in New Orleans. We have the Warriors, the reigning champions, who will probably bring as many people as they need back. Um, I don't know if that window for much for any other team is open anymore. I, I don't know if anyone wants to admit that the Kevin Durant injury is as serious as it really is, but I've talked to some surgeons who who are like, this could be it. He might not come back from this from this and be the same player he was. So you're talking about a very strange landscape now in the Western Conference. Yeah, I mean, I I, I mean that's the biggest thing we can hope for, right? Like, is better health next year. I mean, we so we can see that great 
series between this Warriors team and this Warriors team that's they had amazing health luck this year, which basically nobody else in the league did. So, uh, you know, I think hopefully we'll have they'll stay healthy again next year. We can only hope. Uh, I mean, I don't expect them to play as well during the regular season. I think uh, we'll see the, those minutes limited a ton. Uh, but, you know, we could see the Spurs come back. They might sign a free agent. we got to see what's going to happen with Tim Duncan as well. We don't know whether even whether he's retired or not. He's basically got, uh, you know, about 10 more days to figure that out. Uh, you know, 15 more days to figure that out now uh, before free agency happens. Same thing with Mano Ginobili. So the Spurs could look a lot different. They could even look a little bit better next year, depending on what happens. Uh, you know, Houston is going to be healthier. Oklahoma City. New Orleans could be healthier. They're going to have a new coach. Uh, you know, so I think we could see a lot of great teams potentially next year. You know, the Clippers as well should be good again, too. So that's uh, that's what Portland should be healthier as well. They had all their injuries, uh, you know, assuming everyone comes back there. Um, so we didn't we heard all year how the West was so incredible. And then it didn't really turn out that way, ultimately, with the Warriors path. Uh, and they were they were so much better than anyone else in the regular season anyway. But I, I'm hoping that we'll see healthier teams and some titanic matchups that we were kind of robbed of this year. Sure. I mean, I, I think the biggest tilting point was the Spurs and the Clippers playing in the first round. If that doesn't happen, that sort of tilts everything differently. Uh, but you're right. I mean, with, even with Houston, what they had to deal with, with Wes Matthews going down in Portland, uh, it, right, it really robbed uh, all those teams of, of really giving us what we normally get. And I think, it, you know, the minutes played thing, you know, when you say the Warriors were lucky because they didn't get the injuries, well, you know, look at those minutes. They did a little bit of a Spurs thing pretty much uh, because they were deep. Um, and, uh, you know, and every yeah, move they, they won, won every game by 20. I mean, not every game, oh. but they had it ton of blowouts too that makes it a lot easier to rest your guys too yeah well let me ask you this real quick which is the notion of the three-point shot and how they've used it and going back to what i was mentioning as a young coach being influenced by that um you know they're taking 30 or whatever maybe the the, the rockers are taking 30 35 threes a game the progression over the last 10 years has been a pretty steep incline does that stop well, I think there are a number of components to that, right? I mean, it's always an equilibrium. I mean, number one is we're probably going to get more people who can shoot three-pointers. It's, it's going to be more of an emphasis, especially now when you see that what the Spurs have done, what the Heat have done, you know, all these coaches, you know, junior high and high school coaches are going to say, oh, get down on the block, don't shoot threes. Now all of a sudden it's, whoa, if you have a big who can shoot threes and play good defense, I mean, look at, like, Someone like Carl Towns is another guy in the draft. Chris F. Porzingis, those are guys who could can kind of continue the revolution. So I think you're going to see guys who are better three-point shooters uh, coming in. And, you know, three, threes are still more efficient than twos are. So I think you're still going to see it get pushed up a little bit more, especially as more analytically-minded front offices come in. Not that there isn't a place for sort of more traditional teams. I mean, I think the Cavs and Memphis will show that you can be effective that way, especially hitting the offensive glass. Uh, but, you know, three is worth more than two. And if you have a big guy who's going to kind of bludgeon people down low, if he's giving up a wide open three on the other end, you lost that bet. Yeah, I've always said if I could design an offense that gets me 50 good threes a game, then that's fine. I'll take them if they're good threes. But the thing that also people don't necessarily notice, and even coaches, is that what Atlanta did so well with, and the Spurs in the past as well, is that, remember, the pass, when it's coming from the post area, catching it for the three is a much easier three to make. So you don't need to eliminate the post from your offense. It just needs to be the starting point 
to attack and then kick out, and then that's where the uh, the offensive rebounds come back in as well. Those are the, the the killer threes right off of a missed shot. So I I wonder if we're gonna see less of this, uh, you know, getting back because I'm not even sure that getting back on defense and not going for offensive rebounds was an analytics thing originally. I feel like Tibbs and those guys just did it because they didn't want to get beat on the fast break. Yeah. No, and I think that that's largely has been a pretty decent strategy, uh, although sometimes offensive rebounding can be its own transition defense, uh, you know, as the Cavs kind of proved in this series a lot of times, uh, you know, they're able to get their hands on balls, even jam the outlet passer when they, when the Warriors would get the rebound. So that, that was, those could be effective tactics also. But, yeah, I mean, I think where we will see the post game, and Zach Lowe wrote a great column about this a couple weeks ago, is we're going to see more switching defense now. And now you're going to need to see guys, you know, who are small forwards, who are power forwards, backing down guys who are switched onto them and forcing double teams and then opening up the three-point game that way, like you were talking about. You know, when we saw Draymond Green able to attack a couple of times very successfully in this game in that same fashion. Absolutely. Well, you know, Nate, this turned into a, a, a beautiful conversation and all over the place from what was supposed to be, I guess, a post-game on, on game six – but uh, fantastic stuff. Uh, maybe this will even be a podcast that I'll post because uh, it's a good conversation. Again, remind everybody where they can find you on the internet. All right. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Nate Duncan NBA, and uh, there's a link in my bio there to the Dunked On Basketball podcast. I will probably be writing again soon once I find a new home, uh, especially now that game's over. I might actually have some time to write again, uh, which would be nice. And, uh, you know, the Dunked on Basketball podcast is hosted by Real GM, so you can find that and subscribe on iTunes. So uh, thanks for having me on, Coach. I always appreciate it. You got it, Nate. Uh, we'll talk soon. And uh, uh, am I going to see you in Vegas? Uh, absolutely. I might actually check out uh, Utah this year, which you might want to do, too. I think it's going to be pretty small. They're, they're restarting it. I don't think there are that many teams, but it might be a good chance to, like, have some conversations with people. Wait, uh, you're saying there's going to be an NBA Summer League in Utah? Yeah. Yeah, they had it a long time ago, and now it's coming back this year. I don't know the exact details, but it's like, I think it's like four teams, teams, something like that. We're, we're in it. Interesting. All right, well, we'll check it out. And thanks for coming on the show, Nate. I'm going to wrap up with some questions from my, uh, my guys here, but uh, I'll catch you later up on Twitter. Thanks for having me. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store.